In Alan Moore's 1986 graphic novel Watchmen, Hollis Mason explains his motivation for becoming a hero. He says, In my case, it's fairly straightforward. I like the idea of adventure, and I feel bad unless I'm doing good. I've heard all the psychologist's theories, and I've heard all the jokes and rumours and the innuendo. But what it comes down to for me is that I dressed up like an owl and I fought crime because it was fun and because it needed doing and because I goddamn felt like it. Okay, there it is. I said it. I dressed up as an owl and fought crime. But what about the other heroes of the novel? Are their motivations as straightforward? And should we even call them heroes? I'm Matthew Campbell. My superpower is breaking the fourth wall. And joining me is it this month... Sarah Jamal. Uh, I'm Alex Ho-Season and you're stuck in here with me. <laughs> 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 Am I in Bladin Bowen? Well, there we go. <laughs> okay, um, Alex wins best joke. This there we go. There we go. Didn't even take any effort. Um, I think, I mean, aside from the kind of patent absurdity with which Matt suggested a graphic novel for a kind of audio only podcast, um, I mean, a, a good place for us to start probably is, is I mean, how it kind of stands up. I mean, it's getting on a little bit now. It's 20 years old. It's almost 20 years old. Yeah, 20 years old. Um, but I mean, it's still held up as this kind of paragon of kind of what a graphic novel would be if it was literature and on the cover they always have, you know, in the Times, Time, sorry. Time Magazine's top 100 Top 100 novels, novels or, you know, and all, all of that kind of thing. And how do people feel about it? I mean, it was... Blair, Sarah, it was, it was your first time reading it, right? I mean, how, how did you feel about it in terms of contemporary resonance or whatever else? Uh, I mean, for me, I came really late into the whole graphic novel scene. It wasn't, it never really spoke to me as a young person. And now with the increased diversity in graphic novels, I've paid more and more attention to them. So <clears throat> reading this and moving backwards was kind of interesting. I mean, it has common themes of that can constantly be applied politically, you know, whether it's end of the world, war, racial, gender sort of conversations, um, <clears throat> refugees, uh, mass killings, environmental destruction, all that stuff can be spoken to. And I can see why it's still read, you know, it still has that sort of 1984, oh wow, considering the time that it was written, it was really like a interesting foreshadowing right, right. into how it can <clears throat> you know so for me that was really interesting and I enjoyed that part of it um, yeah Bled? Um, yeah well being um, uh, very interested in international history and strategic studies um, this um, just uh, brought back uh, you know, my knowledge of um, uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, Star Wars uh, speech and, um, and Evil Empire speeches in 1983 and um, the near end of the world that happened in 1983 with the Abel Archer crisis, where uh, the um, Soviet Union thought that a NATO military exercise was a genuine precursor to an invasion by the United States and almost triggered nuclear war. Um, so that for me reflected the general uh, mood in the mid-80s of uh, the end of the world through nuclear Armageddon. And this was this was written just as uh, Mikhail Gorbachev became the Soviet premier and before moves to improve relations between the two superpowers uh, came about in earnest. Um, but despite that, I mean, Sarah, yes, you're right. I mean, the themes of uh, nuclear apocalypse are still just as relevant for us today, even though the Cold War's over. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the heads up because we're about to really, really spoil the ending of the story. But, even though I stood it. Yeah. <laughs> what, one of the principal ideas of the 
of nuclear strategy is how do you escape the system of mistrust and deterrence, right? And one of the commonly posited ideas is that, well, unification is found by the creation of an outside threat. And this is what happens. And so the question is, do you see a giant space squid as a credible solution to the nuclear problem? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if I was in Moscow when that giant monster appeared... I would think, great, the Americans are even weaker now because there's no indication that this is a problem for all of us. So carry on. I mean, that's the big problem I have with sci-fi in general is an assumption that um, that a big existential force, be aliens or something, will bring humans together. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It depends on a multitude of factors. Um, and there's, for me, there's nothing inherently uniting about this big giant squid in Manhattan. It did remind me, I mean, it, it quite interests me having spent a couple of years teaching kind of early kind of undergraduate IR courses, right? First or second year. You know, you do the prisoner's dilemma, you do the security dilemma. You know, when you teach kind of realism, which is kind of one of the more annoying but prevalent theories of international relations, you know, I mean, you teach that stuff. That's, I mean, those are the analogies you use. There, there is quite a strange parallel, right? I mean, it comes up all the time on this podcast, right? When we talk about sci-fi and developments beyond our understanding and things from beyond the pale and all the rest of it. But I mean, it's certainly quite close to how we understand IR and the way we teach it. So, I mean, this is the same conversation that we have with the Dan Dresner book about zombies, right? We're still stuck in this kind of Cold War frame of reference for what these things are supposed to mean. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Alex Went, one of the kind of preeminent IR theorists, wrote his book on, uh, wrote his paper on UFOs as a kind of DXX machina of, of international relations. Um, can I just say there's nothing Cold War about um, taking advantage of your enemy when he's down? That's fairly universal. I'd say it's not a Cold War for him, I think. Absolutely. I think the, the, the idea that the whole world revolves around this single pole of conflict is, is at least. We understand it today. We're taught it today through the analogy of the Cold War, whether we're right or wrong. And I think that's happening, and we can see that with what's the negotiations that are happening in the, in the Middle East right now. I mean, that's the most obvious. You look at, I mean, I swore to myself I wouldn't bring up ISIS, but this is like, a, you know, a perfect example. And it's this giant existential threat that now even has, we now can even talk to Iran about. You know what I mean? Like, look at all of these things coming together. Nuclear talks with, like, sorry, trade talks with Iran, trade talks with Cuba, all the sort of, you know, all of these, these kind of things are now coming to you because we all have this common, common enemy. I mean, this is not new. But then it seems that a lot of the powers in the Middle East are using IS as, a, as an excuse to go after older enemies. So the, well, there's a bit of um, coming together with the United States and Iran, Turkey and the Kurds, it's a different story. IS is, a, is an excuse for... But the same, I mean, the same thing happens in so, Watchmen, right? I mean, yeah. Ozzy, that's what Ozymandias is doing. He's the only one that knows what's happening. And, I mean, Matt, you were suggesting earlier that he was using that to his advantage. Yeah. In, in the final pages, you see that New York's being rebuilt by Pyramid Construction, the name of which clearly means it's his company. Throughout the book, there's a recurring uh, perfume which his company produces called Nostalgia clearly harking backwards. Uh, interestingly, much like the Reagan era. And then, of course, uh, well, the Reagan era is built on the idea that um, the American dream might have been false, but we could totally still make it real if we really tried. But 
throughout, uh, Adrian Veidt is clearly working on something new, and what he's working on is this new fragrance, Millennium, which gets this big billboard right at the end, which is his new product for the new Millennium. And so he's clearly got the setup ready for how to become even more of a superhero billionaire after he destroys Manhattan with a giant space squid. And that sentence, uh, the fact that that sentence makes sense in a plot point of view is why this is the greatest graphic novel of the Silver Age. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, podcast over. I mean, <laughs> but I mean it, it, it's quite clear that what we see in Watchmen, right, whether that necessarily pertains to political reality or not, what we see in Watchmen is is structurally similar to how we understand the Cold War, how we understand, you know, other threats, right? Environmental destruction being the most obvious one, I think. Mm. You know, I mean, the alien is, despite not being natural, it's clearly the kind of biological thing um, with that kind of, it's very much kind of in nature reclaims its own kind of kind of argument going on. Um, I mean, one of the things Matt suggested is, you know, before is that that is science fiction for pretty much full stop, actually. You know, the we, we did Frankenstein last time, right? And and it, I realised the Percy Shelley quote in the when I was reading it. I didn't notice before. Um, but, you know, I, I, effectively, it's, it's, it's fear of things we don't know. And that's, and that's kind of it. Full stop, right? So that's the setting. I guess... I mean, structurally, it was initially published as 12 individual comics, and each chapter seems to settle on a particular character. So yeah. what do we think of the people who populate the world of Watchmen? Uh, I think it's very interesting. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't read many uh, you know, comics or graphic novels, so um, I'm very much an outsider um, for, to this genre. But um, what struck me was how little in terms of like superhero powers that goes on in the whole comic mm. book, with exception to obviously the chapter of Dr. Manhattan, and later on when he actually had the fight scenes uh, with the Ozymandias kind of catching a bullet. Uh, so so for me that was interesting in terms of, well, it's more about you know who are these people rather than, oh, look at them beat up all these people in amazing fight scenes. Um, well, I mean, when we were at Beta, I spoke to Alexander Martins, yes, Alexander Martins, uh, and we were discussing the idea of heroes. And the argument, of course, is that the primary aspect of a hero isn't how hard they can punch or whether they can teleport. It's the fact that they act when the normal rules of society or the situation they're in says that they shouldn't. That's what heroism is by that definition. Now, Rorschach explicitly brings this up when he talks about Kitty Genovese, but the problem with that is we have a word for people who do that in the English language. The word is vigilante. They're not heroes. They're thugs. No, I, I I absolutely agree, but I think the I think the thing that allows us to play with that distinction is the way the narrative's framed, right? So I think that the specificities of the characters and their individual stories don't matter that much because they're structured in all the right ways. Right now, I mean, this is slightly ironic given that they were kind of pre-existing comic characters anyway that Moore took on. But I think what Moore, as the writer, right, he he wrote, yeah, yeah. Um, what Moore is doing actually is playing off so many kind of familiar understandings of what a myth is, what a legend is, and 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 all the rest of it that are familiar to us all the way through the history of Western thought that we can kind of 
recognise or not recognise in them what we what we want. Well, that's certainly explicit with two of them in that Ozymandias is named after this mythical figure and Dr. Manhattan is explicitly in character named for the associated digital rays. But the primary, you know, historical parallel we draw with American people in masks dispensing justice is the KKK. And they're not heroes. Right. So when and they're we... not dispensing justice. No. Well, they're dispensing what they think is justice, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, I mean, the first guy is this rather right-wing white guy called Hooded Justice who wears a literal noose around his neck. Now, if this book is playing off the aesthetic of we instantly recognise what a hero is meant to be, then how have we ended up with an idea of American heroes being hooded? Well, I think it's because, and we, we spoke about this in the Starship Troopers podcast, but in the American kind of self-understanding, at least this is what Malta seems to suggest, um, these kind of post-Enlightenment countries or ideologies, you can define yourself by an idea, right? Justice is blind, so and so on, right? And I think that the hoodedness of, of of the KKK, just as the hoodedness of the heroes in Watchmen, is precisely the same. It's precisely the same idea, right? We can assess afterwards, or you know, in the context whether you know they're espousing the right principles, but it's the fact that they stand for a principle that allows them to hide their identities and their stories and everything else. I mean, Rorschach explicitly says repeatedly in the book that his, without his mask on, he's just Walter Kovacs. With his mask on, he's Rorschach. And there's an extended piece in there concerning which one is actually the real person. Because Rorschach's pretty convinced that Walter Kovacs is an idiot. Hmm. Well, the, what, I, what I like about Rorschach's um, presence on the page is that because he's this wanted vigilante... Um, everyone knows who Rorschach is and would run away or scream or arrest him. Whereas in the early chapters, he walks around with his mask off and other characters just ignore him because they've no idea who he is. Mm. And it sort of of turns the whole notoriety thing on its head. Well, it's interesting to me because, I mean, if you're asking who the Watchmen are and their identities, I mean, out of like six of them, two of them have been to war and are war heroes and and or veterans, right? And then two of them are millionaires or billionaires in one in one way or the other, and I think that that very much speaks to the idea of who can do what in in society and what you know what identities are valued. And then you look at the women characters, and they're massively passive, hypersexualized, and even when they are actually agents in the story, and when they are actually you know kicking some butt, they even have a very passive look on their face aesthetically, and you can see that. They're not in powerful positions when they land in um, when they land in in the Arctic or where the Antarctica. Sorry, when they land, yeah, edit that out. When they land, when they land in the Arctic, you know, she's cold, she's shivering, she's left alone, she has to find her way into a cave, and you know, when they're breaking into the prison, even she doesn't want to go. She's not confident about going in the in 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 the in the novel and she had to be she has to be persuaded by her lover to that she can do this and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so this this um 
it's just very frustrating the women characters in this, and I think that that's not stood the test of time because there are other graphic no- there are other comics, and there are you know that have even even though they're massively problematic with their portrayal of women and women characters as submissive and and, and hypersexualized and whatever else, there are still moments in the book where they are still you know kicking ass. Um, whereas in in this one, I find that it's it's really unfortunate because. Um, it's it's less so in in this in this novel than I've seen it in in others. It it it's certainly a problem with with each character, major character getting their own chapter. Laurie second Silk Spectre gets her own chapter, except her chapter's not about her. Right. Her chapter's about Doctor Manhattan and the comedian. And two separate issues of that she's there as the human foil to show that the doc is actually kind of human. And then there's the revelation that the comedian's her father, and also that he may have shot JFK and killed Woodward and Bernstein, but. Her own chapter's not even about her. She's that passive. Yeah, I mean, it becomes a little bit of a difficult thing. I, th- I, th- I think I looked at it in a kind of more kind of grand structural terms, if you like. And, and I realise that that's perhaps insufficiently sensitive. But, I mean... So you, it... you Manhattan it. That'll be used in the lunchroom for years to come. No, um, is that going to be on the wall? What I mean, no, I, th- I, th- I think, I mean, there's certainly, maybe in writing this, Moore was so, I don't know whether he was obsessed or not, but he was so keen to make the broader point, right, that he skipped over quite a lot of quite serious issues which refer to the characters below that. Because, I mean, there's obviously quite a lot going on when John takes her to Mars and then takes her to New York after the uh, explosion or whatever. You know, there's quite a lot of kind of, um, if you like, antecedents to that in terms of, in various myths, there's characters which can't go where other characters can go. And that's a classic trope. And in this case, Laurie can't go where John can go. I mean, none of the other characters can either, but the, the fact is it's Laurie that ends up doing that. But, I mean, when that... So, Laurie's position is to demonstrate that about Dr. Manhattan to discuss the kinks of the second night out. Oh, no, absolutely. And to reveal yeah, the yeah. misogyny of Rorschach. And also, the, the um, well, the implied ambiguity of the comedian, but I don't think it's all that ambiguous. I think he's still just an awful person. But... Yeah, yeah. Her entire function is this. No, for male absolutely. characters. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, then again, she also performs that function for her mother, but... I don't think her mother qualifies as a well-written female superhero either. No, because oh. she wants to live vicariously through her daughter because she of this fear of aging, right? She wants her legacy to continue and this, this this internal fear she has of aging and not looking beautiful and not no longer being the sex symbol. So then that you know she she travels through to her daughter and that compared to the significantly more healthy relationship between the first night owl and the second night owl, yeah, who, who are active friends and enjoy each other's exploits. But you said you like John in the end. That's a deep intake of breath. <laughs> um, I don't know why yet. I need to have to do that again. That question again. Just give me a minute. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I. Um... So does I mean Doc Manhattan has powers, but does he qualify as a hero? Well, he just exists, doesn't he? And he just. I mean, what is his agency? I don't know. He's, He's just fascinated by to... understanding. The universe around him. He's there as deterrence. Well, yes. Yeah, so, no, he has no after, other after he, Sorry. Sorry. After he, you know, left the United States and went to Mars, he just became just concerned about understanding the nature of matter. At which point, I mean, that's I, I don't know any sort of comic book character that's comparable to that. 
Well, he's um, he's based on Captain Atom. So I think a lot most listeners will be aware of is that all the major characters in Watchmen are reworks of other heroes from Charlton Comics, which DC acquired the rights to, and Moore wanted to put into this, and they wouldn't let him because it leaves half of them dead or or unusable. So uh, Doctor Manhattan is the way he is because that's who Captain Atom is, uh, but it's also why he's blue. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, he's a trope, right? Yeah. So you see this in, well, I'm not just going to list spoilers of various things that I've read, but <laughs> the idea that there's a character who becomes too powerful for the other characters to even understand is a, is, is, is a well-known, you know, and, and therefore withdraws, because frankly, he's probably got something better to do. Right, he wants I mean, to create you, life on his own planet. Right, you know, and and at the end, yeah, he does quite literally state, "Well, you know, by the way, I'm off to create life. See you later." You know, as you do. But what's interesting is he does want to go off at the end. He wants to go off to create life when he wasn't really interested in that when he first got to Mars, right? As yeah. far as I understand it, yes, he was just interested in like just sitting there and sort of you know just just being. I mean, he wasn't even interested in that, really, I don't think. But that wasn't the point. But later, he wants to create life. And so the idea, I guess, is that, I mean, even he, when all of the massacre happens in, in Manhattan, he still, like, his humanity is also found then, right? In a yeah. way that he didn't, that I didn't identify with him earlier in the novel because he just, like, wants to go create life. See, I, I had a slightly different um, response to that. And that was, that's to say that I kind of thought, well he didn't care much about pre-existing life. So actually what he's just getting out of it is his own ability to make and create and manipulate things. Well, he um, has that line, the world's smartest man is of no more consequence to me than the world's smartest termite. Yeah. Well, what's he going to get out of creating new life, aside from getting to finally literally be God? Well, no, no, I'm sorry, about him um, pre-existing life. Well, he cared about pre-existing life enough to kill Rorschach to keep the secret intact and Ozymandias' plan. So, obviously, Laurie's work on Mars convinced him to preserve life on Earth, so that is the point at which he started caring about pre-existing life enough to think, oh, I'll have a go at this myself. But, <laughs> but it's interesting, it wasn't even Laurie's work on Mars that convinced him that. It was the oh, conversation yeah, right. that they yeah. had and it was the memories that she had and just the fact that he realised that all these forces of nature had to come in order for her to exist. It was her existence like as an entity that did that not her convincing in no words that she said you know I mean do you think there's a hero left in the book when none of them left of this I think the most thuggish all of them look is when they're putting down those protesters for Nixon yes that yeah, is yeah. when they're all I mean well, comedians obviously a terrible person anyway um, and Rorschach is well he's extremely violent we'll get to him um, but but I mean you know Apart from that bit, I mean, Dr. Manhattan, well, as we said, he's he's beyond our ethics. Um, and then uh, Night Owl and um, Silk Spectre, they, they seem all right ethically for the rest of the film, uh, for the, of the graphic novel. Oh, he didn't read the book, he watched the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but when they're putting down the protests, well, if they do anything with Nixon, they're going to look, you know, ethically bankrupt anyway. That's interesting that you said that that he's Doctor Manhattan's beyond ethics because of like the references of him and his his links to the CIA 
him still working for the American government, him initially being this all powerful, all knowing, and he like I mean that's what he to me that's what he what he symbolizes right, and it's just like that power that's out there that you will never know, but yet has like a link, and I think that that's where the American context can really come in, like they can identify with that character as there being somebody out there that's got an, a greater understanding, that's sort of sorting, that's that's moving these chess pieces around, right, and that that that's making the, those decisions. For him, I mean, you see him in the Secret Service outfit. You see him. Um, I mean, just just his 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 embodiment, his the way that his like his his body is is this like perfect male specimen. You know, he's in he's in certain wars that we know the CIA was involved in. You know, and I think that that's really interesting because he, you know, and then at the end of the day, he just goes out to. I mean, he, he figures out exactly what's happening, you know, and, and in that way and what he embodies is just, is just so, so obviously the American desire for their own participation in these, in these events. To me, that reflects... So, Dr. Manhattan's their nuclear deterrent, but to me, his more important role for America is that he wins Vietnam for them. And that's sort of a... Especially when we're in the 80s, we're not that far after Vietnam. Losing Vietnam is the sort of pivotal moment of... Various academics have written about the fact that it creates a new era of distrust. It changes how international history is written. And Dr. Manhattan is the omnipotence of being able to win. That if there was an American who chose to win in Vietnam, he could. And to me, is that sort of a central role in the, the America that we get in the book, as opposed to the America of actual history. It's not that Nixon had extra terms or that there was no Watergate scandal. It's that they have this omnipotent guy who goes, no, this is what America will be now. Well, there is that line in the novel where the comedian says um, something to the effect of like God knows how messed up this country would be if we lost that war yeah uh, which I'm really interesting because we see how messed up the United States is in that ultimate yeah. uh, it, reality anyway. it's no better and it still has racism and it still has sexism and it still has urban poverty but of course none of these things are upper echelon American dream stuff and indeed there's, there's the disparity between so when the giant space squid finally teleports in we don't see it from the perspective of the heroes. We see it from the perspective of the minor characters whose roles have been pretty sidelined up until now. Absolutely. John doesn't even see it. He just walks straight past it, wondering what's happened. I mean, I, I, I find it quite funny that actually towards the end of the book where John doesn't know, right? I mean, his, his ability to foresee things basically hits that Gordian knot. And, and, and he, he doesn't know any more than that. He can't admit it in human terms anymore. He just wanders around going, oh, these tachyons are really confusing me. You know, he, he can't figure out around him, you know, the kind of general context of what's going on. And it, it actually makes you slightly kind of retrospectively, if you like, distrust what he's been doing. Right throughout the entire rest of the story, whether that's working for the civil, you know, because you, you uh, the Secret Service or not, because you you see him kind of oh you know he's basically God he can see everything you know that's revealed through the story, and you see these flashbacks of him working for the Secret Service and all that kind of stuff, and you think oh you know he must have kind of had an idea all along, and then you realise no he didn't. Well, he doesn't think he has any choice. He sees history as predetermined. So, assuming he's right, we don't know. This implies that none of the decisions any of the characters make in the novel have any flexibility. That Rorschach is always going to die, that Byte is always going to do what he does. Dr. Manhattan's always going to go to Mars and then come back. The comedian was always going to kill that uh, yeah. pregnant lady. So, and that, uh, But I think that's what lends the book a kind of 
mythic structure, right? In that sense. These are the legends we tell, right, about the kind of progress of history or about the inevitable nature of nuclear war or whatever, right? Because none of the characters, even the one that is... Omnipotent. Omnipotent, beyond our wildest imaginings, is still caught back in back in the the kind of effective march of history. I mean, I I, I think it. Sorry. So well, the last thing, Doctor Manhattan is not omnipotent. He's he's interfered with by those tachyons, and also he was not uh, a perfect nuclear shield for against the Soviet Union. Yeah. So and his bigger. I mean, it's entirely shown that his trip to Mars is deliberately orchestrated by the villain. He has human weaknesses. Mm. He gets emotionally upset. Because, I mean, Ozymandias seems to, to me to be the more omnipotent one out of all of them. <laughs> because his plan actually works. And he gets Dr. Manhattan to... The test of the strategist, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's the most effective one. He got what he wanted. Yeah. This is a fair point, though, right? Is that no, the, doc, the doc has no objective, so there's no purpose to his power. He doesn't want to do anything. So, whereas Ozymandias, he's one man, but... He has objectives. I don't want to praise Space Squid, but he has a dream and he realises it. I like Space Squid. I think it's one of the most beautiful shots in Right. So, it's, so I mean, <laughs> Bob, Bob Chipman argued that it's, it's the capstone of sort of Silver Age aesthetic as horror, right? Yeah. That, okay, this is the crazed, bonkers monster which came from the depths of whatever mad thing the writers could dream up and it destroys Manhattan. What do you think about the kind of all-pervading cynicism of the book as a general kind of tone that's just Alan Moore right maybe that's too much of a short answer but well a little bit because not everyone's read all the other Alan Moore's <laughs> but I mean it was interesting it to me like that you said that you really love I mean like we know that this is like a, a big vagina right yeah, yeah. that's very like, explicit that's, right? that's, that's obvious right to every, just not just me yeah yeah so, I thought the same thing so okay I'm just, <laughs> just making sure so, you know, the, like you said, the idea of Mother Nature coming to us, so that's just interesting that it's your favourite favorite moment. The, the squid's created, the design is created by a female artist, right? Is it? Yeah. So when, oh, the, course, when all yes. the kidnapped oh, people yeah, are on the right. island, she's drawing a picture of it. And it's this implied to be Indian woman. Yeah, an Indian woman, which is so... And so the, the scheme has been orchestrated by the chess master that is Osman Tyus. But... Yeah, because when I when I saw that um, panel and you see the painting being drawn, I was like, "What the hell was that?" And then obviously I saw that, it's like, "Ah!" Oh. I mean, I I, I, was, I, I, I whole idea I that Mother there. Nature will save us, you know. So Rorschach. Moving on to Rorschach. Huh? So Rorschach is sort of he's the one everyone dresses up as as Halloween. If someone does a Watchmen outfit, they do Rorschach, and he's an odd choice because he's kind of vile. But this got interesting recently because. Senator Ted Cruz, who's running for president, or wants to, was asked by the New York Times who his five favourite superheroes were. And he responded, well, first of all, he didn't say Superman, which you'd have thought a Republican would say. He said Batman and Iron Man, multi-millionaire vigilantes. Spider-Man and Wolverine, sounds very much like he's naming heroes he can think of. And then number five was Rorschach. Now, I don't think finger-breaking... Harsh to victims of crime, dog murdering, burns people alive. Rorschach is really who a candidate for president should have picked in that juncture. But well, I think it's something that certainly marked the novel out as curiously uh, prescient, right? I mean, in the sense of, I mean, this is basically kind of Tea Party, the 
movie, right? In in in, in, in the sense. <laughs> Sarah doesn't want that film to happen. No, okay. Um, no, but I, I, I mean it. You, there's quite a lot of references early on. I, I, I think. I mean, I tend to get caught up in the later stuff because I'm quite interested in that myth thing. But I mean, early on, there's quite a lot of stuff when they go into Walter Kovacs slash Rorschach's apartment. You know, they say it's full of Nazi uh, or fascist kind of literature, and all the rest of it. And you, you see that the paper that he's been reading the whole time is called The New Frontiersman, mm-hmm. right? That kind of classic survivalist. Well, I mean, may, may, maybe at the cold, you know, actually maybe I'm reading it wrong because I kind of think that that's kind of outdated and everything else, but maybe in the Cold War, the idea that the commies were coming was even more common than it is with the survivalist now, sorry. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, well... The communists were the enemy then. The same way well, that people course, yeah. afraid of, um, you know, Jihadi John knocking on your front door tomorrow in the middle of Kansas. Um, but in terms of um, Ted Cruz, I think the one thing that strikes me about it being common between the Tea Party and Rorschach is the values they put on no compromising. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in terms of what possibly good thing would he want people to draw from him picking Rorschach? Well, okay, strength and in not compromising because... As we all know, the Tea Party doesn't like to do that. Maybe he doesn't like dogs. <laughs> oh no, I I, th- I think that's very valid because that's everything that's both wrong with the Republican Party, but also what's strangely admirable about their own decision to go burning down in flames. But, and I can believe that Tea Party is if they had access to the nuclear weapons, preferring to destroy the world and yeah. still think they were right, um, a... rather than have a lie and have some form of post-apocalyptic world, that's not too bad. So, uh, Jeet here of New Republic, upon reacting to the Ted Cruz story, um, argued instead that Rorschach is actually the best guy in the book, and that there's a lot to you know be admired about Rorschach. He's the only one who cares that the comedian has been murdered, he, he's right about the conspiracy, he follows things up, and he shouldn't compromise, because the thing everyone else compromises to is utterly horrible. And so, is Rorschach praiseworthy? Well, it depends if you take, you know, the, okay, you destroy half of New York versus destroy life on Earth. I mean, that was a choice they were facing with Ozymandias. So, for me, I can, I can see why they would have chosen to allow New York to be destroyed. Because it was going to be destroyed anyway if that nuclear war happened. Is that the case? Yeah, but this is hypothetical, right? It's yeah. just like, oh, but that's, I mean, that, I, I would argue that's your strategist coming out saying, you know, because it's like, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a... I'm not going to start an argument with Ozymandias. He's a smart guy. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's something more fundamental going on. And, and, and that is, I mean, there's a couple of odd parallels that are going to sound quite strange when I say it. Rorschach chooses to die, right? That's not a statement about Rorschach fighting for the for an unrealistic chance at avoiding nuclear apocalypse. That's Rorschach saying, I don't want to live in that world. Which I think is actually precisely what a kind of American way of thinking I just did scare quotes by the way. Um <laughs> without realising. Um is precisely what an American way of thinking would aim towards because if America is a country that's based on an idea as we've discussed before 
then actually I can see exactly what Americans find admirable. In, you know, it, I mean, actually what's happening is Rorschach is making precisely the same decision that Socrates makes. I was about to say that's the worst parallel ever, but I'm really struggling to think of why that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm oh, sorry. Well, Socrates was tried for corrupting the youth, right, through his talking, through his telling people that they might need to think about stuff. And he was offered a choice. Either he could, in, uh, under Athenian law, he could propose his own punishment, right, which was typically, you know, he might exile himself, right, or he could have the punishment that the court chose for him. And this was a kind of form of mediation. And that's precisely what, I, th I think in the end, he proposed that the court give him some cows or something. And, and, and so in effect, he commits suicide. Because right? they made him drink hemlock. Because they made him drink hemlock as his okay. punishment. So Rorschach is choosing to do that. But my question is, is that, okay, so we're assuming he refuses to, he, he takes his moral high ground or moral whatever ground and that he doesn't want to live in this, he doesn't want to live in this world that the whole premise of peace is based on dishonesty, right? But that was never going to happen because he sent the journal. He sent the journal so the honesty, like the story was going to come out whether he lived or died. Because, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's wrong, quite so important in who he gives the story to. I mean, he gives the story to the editor of The New Frontiers. Who he trusts, but who no one's going to listen to. Who he trusts, but everyone else is going to think is an utter kook. Has mm. kook got really bad connotations? I just used it without thinking. I don't think so. Okay. Oh, just, um, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> just to say absolutely. Um, That's not a good one either. But, um, no, I mean, uh, I just want to go back to the inevitability thing. That was something that was running through my mind reading it. It's like, you know, for me it was like, yeah, nuclear war could happen, but... Not necessarily, therefore there's I, no need to rush into this I think the, destroying New York idea. I think the book um, fundamentally disagrees that it's inevitable. So the parallel that runs throughout is that one of the minor characters in the book is reading an in-character comic book called Tales from the Black Freighter. And part of the reason this was invented was because the writers didn't think that superhero comics would be popular in a world where there were actual superheroes. And the story of the guy in the Black Freighter comic parallels the story of Ozymandias. But the point is, he does the terrible, terrible thing in order to save the world, only to then discover that he was wrong. He murders people to save his own village, and then realises the pirates hadn't got to the village, and he murdered people for nothing. Now, the parallels between this character and Ozymandias are incredibly explicit. Um, there's references to sharks, as opposed to Rorschach. Ozymandias makes a comment where he dreams of something that the character sees in the comic. And so, if Ozymandias is this... Um, this sailor, and the sailor is wrong, doesn't this make Ozymandias wrong? Well, I think, throughout the comment, I mean, I just point out the extra thing of, there's very little, there's not much going on by way of evidence of nuclear war actually approaching. Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't engage itself. I mean, you see the TV screens, right, occasionally, but it doesn't engage itself with showing, you know, frames in the comic of Russians massing on the borders and all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, actually, where you get most of your sense of the apocalypse is coming from are the people selling newspapers on the streets, the kind of people you get at Speaker's Corner in London with the apocalyptic banners and all of that kind of thing. Which I think makes this a really great parallel to the whole war on terror, which is what that brings that back, brings brings me back to that and, and what, what I couldn't help but to think about the entire time I was reading this. I mean, yeah, for me, it's like, you know, OK, the Soviets are in Afghanistan 
really isn't that important for the United States. Well, the Soviets were going to invade Afghanistan. And they were going to be stuck there for a while. And, they were, and then they were going to push on into Pakistan. Again, the United States with nothing probably didn't have a big strategic problem with that because they'd be a problem for the Soviets, therefore let them go in in yes. terms of US point of view. So for me that, that sort of questions the whole premise of nuclear war is coming when it's not like they were marching across Central Europe. There's the, that really weird scene which paints Richard Nixon as reasonable and measured. <laughs> where he's got the nuclear football, which in the art is an actual football, not a briefcase. And they all get ready, and they get ready for the emergency, and they all get in the bunker, and then he says, okay, now we just wait. Which implies that without some kind of trigger, the Americans aren't going to go. Now this implies either that the Americans are the reasonable ones, not sure that's the case, or... Ultimate the, reality here, mind you. Yes, well, Robert Redford's running for president. Or that war isn't inevitable, and Osmond Dias is wrong. Well, I mean, they will go to that bunker to wait out a first strike, and then after the first strike, they would launch back because they would have set, guaranteed sex strike capability. So, for me, that we now we wait. It's like ah, now you wait to see if the Soviets would actually launch first, because it, it's madness to start a nuclear war. So, if we believe that Nixon is reasonable, <laughs> that for me, that's how I read that situation. Um, so, all right. So, um, we should probably be. Sorry. It's two minutes to midnight here. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should probably be uh, finishing up there. Um, so that was our first experiment with doing uh, a vi- visual medium or a podcast. Um, we did Agent Carter. Oh, yeah, we did, didn't we? Seems so long ago. Our um, best experiences all tied simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, thanks very much, everyone. And uh, we'll be back in a month with... Uh, Whatever the next one is. At the moment, we're not seeing past the Gordian knot. But uh, (laughs) thanks very much for listening. Too many shaky (laughs) ups.